0: The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. This is your host, Ezra Wheeler. So as anyone who has walked down Bill Street has probably noticed, the sidewalks of uh, that famed three blocks are just really covered in brass musical notes, all inscribed with the names of people who, in one way or another, contributed to the street's legacy. So the brass notes, which by my count now number around 175, were the brainchild of John Elkington, who wanted to, quote, offer a tangible embodiment of the many talented people who had pit, put Memphis Music and Bill Street on the world map, end quote. So, beginning in 1986, these notes have been dedicated to various artists, promoters, DJs, business owners, and everyone in between on an annual basis, and they've kind of become a strange source of fascination for me. So as many of you may know, my main job is the program director at uh, the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum and the Memphis Music Hall of Fame, two museums located at opposite corners of Bill Street, which means that I'm often shuffling between the two with my head down, wondering just who some of these names are. So while many of the names are bona fide legends of Memphis music, such as Isaac Hayes, Big Star, Booker T and the MGs, and Jerry Lee Lewis, others are a bit more obscure. So on today's show, I'm going to take you on a walk with me down Bill Street to uh, more deeply investigate seven brass note recipients who I think deserve a deeper look. Why seven, you may ask? Well, because that's uh, <laughs> that's when I got tired of writing. So this project I've been meaning to do for at least a couple of years now, and I am excited to share some of my more interesting findings with you. So while there were uh, more than enough interesting and accomplished folks to delve deeper into. I'm largely going to focus on those unheralded musicians who contributed specifically to the culture and history of Bill Street. So with that said, let's jump right into our first Brass Note recipient, Mr. Clyde Hopkins. So for a while now, I've been especially intrigued with Clyde Hopkins, primarily because his Brass Note reads, Godfather of the Blues, which I always thought was a pretty strong honorific for a man that I was basically unfamiliar with. Or at least I thought I was until I realized during my research that I not only only knew exactly who Mr. Hopkins was, but had also had the pleasure of meeting him. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. So, Clyde Hopkins was born in Tunica, Mississippi in 1921, although his brass note reads 1927. This mistake was uh, one that Hopkins claimed he did intentionally so as to keep himself a few years younger. Anyway, in true bluesman fashion, He was raised in his mother's juke joint, which she called Big Babies and later The Roadhouse. And predictably, it was here that a young Hopkins began his lifelong love affair with the blues, learning his craft under the tutelage of early blues stars such as Sonny Boy Williams and Lightning Hopkins, who Clyde actually claimed as an uncle. Quote, I watched them and learned to play from that. I started playing piano when I was six and I had to stand up to play. By the time I was 12, I was playing piano and singing in roadhouses on my own, he said. So Hopkins first arrived in Memphis around 1938 and actually started playing in some of Bill Street's most famed clubs, such as the Hippodrome and the Flamingo. And uh, pretty quickly, he became a member of the very last iteration of W.C. Handy's Orchestra, working with that group during their final recordings. So uh, I think it was this historical link that led Clyde to begin referring to himself as the godfather of the blues decades later, kind of more of a testament to his longevity and his unique link to the genesis of Memphis music more than a proof of his own musical influence. Anyway, speaking of his influence, I have to say now that I get the sneaking suspicion that Mr. Hopkins may time or two slightly overstated his own legacy a bit. But then again, who really knows when it comes to the wild world of Memphis music? Anyway, what I'm referring to is, according to Clyde, he was an important mentor to a young Elvis Presley, apparently coaching him on singing and stage presence before he became a star at Sun Studio. So while this will probably never be fully settled, what we do know for sure is that Clyde Hopkins would go on to be a popular entertainer on Beale, and in 1965, he actually purchased the Club Tropicana in North Memphis, which was a really important launching pad for a generation of blues and R&B talents. So later in his life, Clyde Hopkins became an iconic presence on Beale Street. He was regularly dressed in the nines in a three-piece suit and wing wingtip shoes and would amuse tourists with tales of a bygone era in Memphis. So more often than not, you could find Clyde... Uh, setting up shop near the front doors of the Memphis music shop, dancing, singing, hawking copies of his original CDs, just kind of chatting with anybody who would take the time. So like most people, this is how I became familiar with Mr. Hopkins, who was really of a one-of-a-kind character. Um, In June of 2017, Mr. Hopkins passed away at the age of 95, and during my research, I just saw people from all over the country who had posted memories of their encounters with him on Beale Street, which I think proves that his influence as an ambassador to Memphis and the blues really far surpassed his importance as a musician. And I really do say that with all due respect and admiration. So anyway, in case there was any doubt, Clive Hopkins' brass note is located right where it should be, directly outside of the entrance to the Memphis music shop where he charmed tourists and locals alike for nearly two decades. So as I was looking for videos of Clyde on YouTube, I found uh, what I consider one of, the ra- ra- excuse me, one of the rarest things you can find in our modern world, which is a YouTube comment that was both thoughtful and insightful. So it came from a man named Larry Worman, who wrote, quote, I was visiting the Stacks Museum and I was waiting for my wife to exit when this older gentleman pulled up in an Escalade and started asking me questions about how much I knew about the blues. I said I'm pretty much a casual listener of the genre when he finally introduced himself as Clyde Hopkins, godfather of the blues. (coughs) Excuse me. I thought I was being hustled on the street corner to buy one of his CDs, which he autographed for me, but little did I know I met a living legend. I just wish I would have spent more time with him instead of trying to get away. He kept telling me, I'm here to help you, not hurt you, son. Lesson learned. If you don't slow down long enough to appreciate things in life, like someone wanting to engage in a casual conversation, you're going to miss out on a life-changing experience. At least I've got a CD to listen to to remind me of that fleeting moment. End quote. All right, before we move on, I do want to take a listen to one of Clyde Hopkins' mid-career songs recorded back in 1966 on Memphis' Black Gold Records. This is Clyde Hopkins with his track, Santa Fe. ¶¶
0: if you get lost in Bay please sit down and write to me. On the great, no, right,
2: right
1: down on the All right, so our second Brass Note recipient is Rudy Williams, a man who actually has a whole lot in common with Clyde Hopkins, especially when it comes to uh, serving as a modern figurehead for Bill Street's past later on in his life. So up until his passing in 2011, Williams was a near-constant president on Beale Street for the better part of 50 years and was known as both the ambassador of Beale and the mayor of Beale Street. In fact, if you visited Beale Street at any point in the year spanning between the mid-1980s and 2011, I'd say there is a pretty good chance that you encountered Mr. Williams playing his trumpet in his signature pinstripe suit and bowler hat right outside of King's Palace Cafe. So, uh, before he was one of Bill Street's most well known fixtures and apparently a muse for countless amateur photographers, Rudy Williams was an accomplished trumpet player who started performing on Beale in the 1950s. So, his first claim to fame was taking home the top prize at the Palace Theater's legendary Amateur Night, which garnered him, garnered him enough attention to be asked to play the Memphis Blues at the unveiling of the W.C. Handy statue on Beale Street in 1960 the year he graduated from high school. So in the ensuing half a century, Williams remained a de facto attraction on Beale Street. Uh, He basically oversaw every funeral procession that honored famed musicians. That was kind of his maybe biggest duty. And uh, shortly before his death, Williams was quoted as saying, quote, I just want to keep a part of what used to be on Beale Street alive today. So if that was his ultimate goal, then I say he fulfilled his life's work with notable gusto. So while Rudy Williams did little, if any proper recording during his life, there are a plethora of homemade videos of him on YouTube, including this one, which was made within a week of his death.
2: I just hang out on Bill. I uh, <laughs> like what Dever C. Henry wrote when he said he'd rather be here than any place I know. If Bill Free could talk, A lot of married men would pack their bags and walk, except one or two, who never drank booze. And the blind man on the corner singing the Beale Street Blues.
1: So, our next musician, memorialized in brass, is a man by the name of Mose Vinson, a jazz and blues piano player known around town as Mr. Boogie Woogie. So, like our last two subjects, Vinson lived and performed long enough to see himself become somewhat of a relic of a bygone time, although I would respectfully argue that his musical legacy endures stronger than that of either Mr. Williams or Hopkins. So, Mose Vinson was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1917. And his family moved to Memphis when he was very young. Soon after, he started to teach himself to play the piano, and he actually developed his own kind of barrel house-style piano that he'd bring to the city's juke joints in the 1930s and 40s. So in the early 1950s, Vincent quite serendipitously got a job as a studio caretaker at Sun Studios. And uh, between takes, he would kind of tinker around on the studio's piano, which eventually caught Sam Phillips' uh, attention. And Sam Phillips, in his infinite wisdom, decided to begin recording Mose in 1953. So although none of those initial recordings were released until the 1980s, they can be heard today on the box set Sun Records, The Blues Years, 1950 to 1958. So the year following his first recording with Sun, Vincent also played on one of Sun Records' greatest blues singles, James Cotton's haunting Cotton Crop Blues. Let's take a quick listen.
2: Ain't gonna raise no more cotton. I'll tell you the reason why I said so. I ain't gonna raise.
1: So following that session, Vincent would go on to play on future sunsides with artists such as Walter Horton and Joe Joe Hill Lewis, amongst others. So for the next few decades, uh, most Vincent continued to perform around Memphis a bit, but largely left music and performing behind. But that all changed in the early 1980s when the Center for Southern Folklore hired Vincent to perform at special cultural festivals and at local schools. And uh, pretty quickly, it became a regular attraction at the center where he remained for 20 years. So he also started traveling around the country for performances, including notable performances at the Chicago Blues Festival, the University of Chicago Folk Festival, and the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville. So his late career resurgence culminated with the release of his first and only full-length album called Piano Man, which was released through the Center for Southern Folklore in 1997. So the album features 18 songs of some of Vincent's finest piano playing and is really a great testament to his reputation as one of the city's last old-time bluesmen. So after nearly 70 years of making music, Mose Vincent passed away in Memphis in 2002. So before we move on, let's take a listen to a track from that 1997 album, Piano Man. This is Mose Vinson with his song, Three Hand Boogie. the things that i discovered while researching some of the unfamiliar names lining bill street was that a kind of strange number of the brass notes belonged to musicians who had died tragically young which sadly includes our next musician so born emmanuel gales who is the brother of fellow esteemed memphis blues guitarist eric and eugene gales little jimmy king took his performance name from his two favorite guitarists Jimi hendrix and albert king So like the two legends whose names he adopted, Little Jimmy King was also a left-handed guitarist who learned to play the guitar upside down. He started playing at the age of six and was originally interested in rock and roll, but transitioned to the blues in the 1980s when he was in his early 20s. So by 1988, he had been invited to join Albert King's band on the road. um, As his second guitarist, And the two really forged a close relationship with Albert eventually calling the young man his adopted grandson, which in turn led Jimmy to officially change his last name to King. So little Jimmy King also gained the attention and admiration of folks like Stevie Ray Vaughan, who touted him as one of the nation's best up-and-coming guitarists. So after leaving Albert King's band around 1990, Jimmy uh, formed his own ensemble, Little Jimmy King and the Memphis Soul Survivors, who released their self-titled debut in 1991. So that album really created a strong buzz within the blues rock world, and Jimmy continued his hop streak by collaborating with two Memphis legends, former high record stars Ann Peebles and Otis Clay, playing on both of uh, those artists' late career albums. He also continued to release blistering solo albums, featuring members of Stevie Ray Vaughan's band Double Trouble, as well as a collaborative effort with his brothers, billed as, appropriately enough, the Gales brothers. In 1997, he connected with another legend of high records, producer Willie Mitchell, who oversaw his soulful album, Soldier of the Blues. Tragically, uh, little Jimmy King would die of a heart attack at the age of 34 in 2002, really as his star was on the rise. So, following his death two posthumous live albums were released um, at least one of which was recorded on beale street and i think they really capture the passion and fire of his playing so i want to take a listen to one of those live tracks before we move on this is little jimmy king with his cover of his hero albert king's classic cross cut saw from the album live at bb king's Baby duck me close alone. I'm a cross cut soul. Baby duck me cross your loan. I got your wood so easy for you. You can't help but say how Alright, so although our next brass note recipient could uh correctly be called an architect of the soul and funk guitar sound. Like his contemporary Steve Cropper and Teeny Hodges, our next note recipient, Charles Skip Pitts, is largely defined by one simple guitar riff. That being said, it does not get much better or more iconic than what he laid down on Isaac Hayes' 1971 smash hit theme from Shaft. But I'll uh, let Mr. Pitts tell that that story himself.
2: Now, wanna know how Shaft was created? We were in Cover City. With Gordon Parks, Isaac Hayes, and I played lead guitar on this particular song, Shaft. We were looking for something that would go with the walk, you know, the walk when you came out of the subway, right? I remember he said, told Willie Hall, the drummer, he said, man, give me some 16th notes. While that was happening, Isaac was at the piano, ding, you know, ding, trying to create something. Me, I tuned my guitar up, okay? And then I was checking my pedals out. So when I got the fuzz played, you know, whatever I played, got to that cold blade some stuff, and then got to the Wawa, and I said, Doon, "Doom, doom, doom, He said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm just tuning up." He said, "Keep playing that, keep playing that riff." So we worked on it, and then when he changed, he said, "Doom," I changed. And went to his key to play the same rhythm. He said, No, stay on your G. Stay on your G. Whatever I do, don't worry about me. Don't think about me. And then, even when he got the doo 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 ding ding, I still was on G. And I'd say, We were doing some other stuff where he saying, Hit me twice. You know, I'm still on the same run. All through the whole damn entire structure. I haven't changed anything but the flavor of my foot. On the end, I used the F chord and said, wah, 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 wah. I had to do it then, because that was over. And I was so happy to hear that. Wah, 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 wah. I was so damn glad. To me, it seemed repetitious, redundant, and ridiculous. Shows you what you know, all right? And at the time when it came out, and I'm hitting it in the car, I still didn't like what I was doing. It was like. Why did he let me do all that shit all through the song? You know, but then later on, it started hitting on me. It started <laughs> start wearing on me, right?
1: We did not know Shab was going to be Shaft. So uh, while that iconic guitar lick may be a key part of Mr. Pitts' mythology, it really does not come close to defining his whole career. Sir Charles Pitts was born in Washington, D.C. in 1947 and started playing the guitar around 11. And uh, as... as Fate would have it, one of his earliest teachers was none other than Bo Diddley, the legendary proto-rock-and-roller who was, conveniently enough, a neighbor of the Pitts family. So his uncle also owned a hotel that was connected to the Chitlin circuit, which also gave a young Charles even more exposure to R&B stars like James Brown. So by his late teens, Pitts was already part of the touring bands of uh, stacked stars like Wilson Pickett and Sam and Dave, and in 1968, he joined the Isley Brothers, notably playing the scorching guitar riff for It's Your Thing, which went on to become a number one RB hit. Let's take a quick listen.
0: It's your thing, do what you want to do. I can't tell you, to It's your thing, do what you want to do.
1: So for obvious reasons, uh, that song and probably his work with Stax folks like Sam and Dave caught the attention of Isaac Hayes, who recruited the hotshot guitarist to come to Stax actually for the specific purpose of helping him craft the Shaft soundtrack. So lucky, luckily for everyone, Pitts remained in Memphis as a member of Hayes' band and also accompanied 70 stars like Rufus Thomas, Albert King, and the Soul Children. So following the demise of Stax, Pitts remained active in Memphis, uh, and played with retro outfits like the Bow Keys and Elmo in the Shades, contributed to various film soundtracks and albums from artists such as Al Green and Cyndi Lauper, and actually even took up a teaching position at the Stax Music Academy. So although his contributions to music are, in my opinion, still woefully ignored, I am happy to say that Pitts received his brass note on bill in 2011, just a few months before uh, before his death. So before we move on, let's take a listen to another one of Charles Skip Pitt's enduring tracks. This is him on Rufus's Thomas often sampled hit, The Breakdown. So our next Brass Note recipient is Little Laura Dukes. And uh, in my opinion, she was one of the last true heroes of Bill Street, a uh, place that she helped bring attention to for nearly 80 continuous years. So I really wanted a reason to talk about Little Laura Dukes for a while now, um, mainly because she was kind of left a pretty strong impression on my father, who would go and catch her on Beale Street in the 70s and 80s when she was already an elder stateswoman of the blues. So anyway, Dukes was born in Memphis in 1907 and began performing as a very small child alongside her father, who was a drummer with the WC Handy Band. Unlike her father, though, little Laura chose to adopt a more unpolished and raw form of music to dedicate her life to. So in the 1930s, Laura, who was also known as Little Bit for her apparently just tiny stature, Uh, She began singing and playing guitar, banjo, ukulele, and the mandolin with a variety of Bill Street musicians, including Robert Nighthawk and the Memphis Jug Band. So by the early 1950s, she recorded with Will Batts and the South Memphis Jug Band, although those recordings would not be released until the 1970s. And then later on, she would work with two other legends of Bill Street's Jug Band scene, Will Shade and Gus Cannon. So her popularity within the jug band scene was based on a few important assets, including her explosive voice, apparently incredible stage presence, and her mastery of the ukulele. So despite her popularity locally, very few people were aware of Little Laura Dukes outside of Memphis. Although, as so often happens with these blues folks, that did change at least to an extent. So in the 1970s and 80s, Dukes was featured in several documentaries about the blues, including the BBC, the BBC series, The Devil's Music, and the film All Day and All Night. So this attention allowed her to perform in front of bigger and more diverse audiences, pretty much all the way up until her death in 1992 at the age of 85. So before we move on, I want to listen to an interview with Dukes uh, from 1982 discussing Bill Street. And then we'll jump right into her original tune, Little Laura's Blues.
0: Well, everybody had a good time on B.S. Was it any wild? No, not to me. It wasn't wild. Everybody had real good times on B.S. including me. I went down there. I was that guy, that Robert Burris' brother. They used to call him Ukulele Kid. I was with, he was with the band sometimes, too. So I can't remember far back, you know. I did you play every day on Big Street or did you play just on no, the weekend? No, not every day. We would, sometimes we we wouldn't just be playing on the weekend. Sometimes we play in the middle of the week, you know. Then we'd go down on the field and play on the weekends. Mm-hmm. You enjoyed your life. Oh yeah. I, Good time. Yeah, in my young days I really did enjoy life. So the only instrument that you used to play was the ukulele? ukulele. Because that's a banjo ukulele what I got. Yeah. yeah, I first started with the banjo. I got that banjo in East St. Louis, Illinois. That's where I bought it. At. I went to East St. Louis. I went over in Big St. Louis for a while, you know. I didn't stay in Big St. Louis. I stayed in East St. Louis. Three months I, I stayed up there.
2: But you spent most part of your life yeah. in
0: Memphis. Yeah, because yeah, it's my home. Oh yeah, this is my home. This is one of my blues. I wrote. I'm not lying. I wrote this a long time ago. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: love that voice. It makes me smile. So our final brass note recipient is Earl the Pearl Banks, a man that I actually was familiar with, but I have to imagine a lot of you folks who are at least not from Memphis probably are not. So Earl the Pearl is arguably the last active musician on Beale Street who really has roots in the street's musical heyday. Anyway, he was born in Germantown in 1936 before Germantown was the strip mall strewn suburb that we all know today and he actually began his musical journey as a blues pianist sneaking away at the age of 10 to play in local juke joints so in 1954 at the age of 18 he moved to memphis in order to be a part of bill street but unfortunately a problem quickly arose quote i got in a lot of bands but the club didn't have a piano sometimes i had to go over in the corner and just sit there and look I said, all right, I'm going to play guitar. So long about 1955 or 56, I went and bought me a guitar and an amplifier, and I learned how to play that guitar. I've been messing with guitar ever since, end quote. So now a guitar player, Earl formed the group Banks and the Blue Dots, which included several future legends, including uh, a young teeny Hodges. So the group quickly became a mainstay on Beale, and regularly gigged at clubs such as the Flamingo Room and the Hippodrome, and were apparently a pretty big ticket. In the mid-1960s, though, the Earls band, the Blue Dots, would go on to become the high rhythm section, which of course was the house band for Willie Mitchell's Royal Studio, where they backed up acts like Al Green and Ann Peebles. Undeterred, though, uh, Earl went on to form a new band, the Soul Soothers, and together they would back up musicians such as Little Johnny Taylor, Coco Taylor, Al Green, and Rufus Thomas. And Earl also acted as a sideman to legends like Etta James, Albert King, and his hero, B.B. King. So although he had several other bands in the ensuing years, Earl the Pearl uh, is largely had top billing as a solo artist for the past several decades, and continues to be a mainstay on a bill, regularly playing at clubs like B.B. King's and the Blue City Cafe. Or at least he did until coronavirus ruined the fun for all of us. Anyway, Earl is now 84 years old, so uh, once things do open back up, please do yourself a favor and go check him out. So, although his career spanned 70 years, Earl has not released a ton of official music. Although you can find a few albums from his 1980s band, the Blues Busters, which is who we'll hear now. This is Earl the Pearl and the Blues Busters with their track, I Ain't Got No Job, from the 1985 album Busted. Alright, well that will do it uh, for our tour of just a small handful of Bill Street Brass note recipients. But the next time you find yourself walking down that storage street, do yourself a favor and take a moment to look down and if a name catches your attention, perhaps do a little research of your own. It was actually quite a fun little experiment. Um, And there are just hundreds of little stories down there waiting to be discovered. All right, before we move on, as always, I'd like to thank the good folks at Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation for their support of the show. And uh, big thanks to all you out there listening. So let's wrap things up as we do each episode with a quick trip to Mud Island to add yet another song to the Mud Island Mixtape. Right. So today on the Mud Island Mixtape, we are going to break precedent a bit by playing not one, but two great songs. That's because this past week I had two friends of mine who sent me their new releases. And I was genuinely so impressed by both that it only seemed right to help share them with the world. So the first track comes from my friend and a former co-worker, Victoria Dowdy, whose band Oak Walker just released their single Hour by Day, a soulful alt-folk song that really has me excited to hear what they come out with next. And the second song we're going to hear is from one of my oldest friends, Eva Brewer, whose band Artemis Sound also just released their debut single called It's All Wrong, a track that I have a harder time categorizing, but which is a bit reminiscent of folks like Valerie June or Fiona Apple. Anyway, both are really uh, great examples of the new generation of Memphis music. So keep your eyes and ears open from music, more music from both of these bands soon. Once again, the tracks are Oak Walker with Hour by Day and Artemis Sound with It's All Wrong, both of which you can find on Spotify. In the meantime, y'all stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.
0: Memphis Musicology is a joint production of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum and the OAM Network. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and the oamnetwork.com. Hosted by Ezra Wheeler. Produced by Gil Worth. Logo and designed by the OAM Network. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee theoamnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.